Hi everybody, I'm Laura. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi Laura. Hi, Laura. And um, yeah, um, I'm glad to be here today um, to share uh, my experience, strength, and hope. All of a sudden I'm a little nervous, so that's good. It makes two of us, right? Um, so, what can I say? Uh, well, I'll just start right with the big book, I guess, because um, Mill and I sort of broke up little passages that we thought we'd talk about and take turns talking about. Um, and uh, I think our stories might come out just as we're sharing uh, on that. Um, so I'll just briefly say that um, I've been in OAs. I went to my first meeting, and actually this is my first big book that I had. Um, I went to my first meeting and sometime in 2008, I think I wrote down important dates. I don't know why, but I did in uh, 19, January of 1981. And my, I went to my second meeting in June of 1981. Um, I started writing my first uh, inventory in January of 1982. I was still struggling with the food. And I got my first day of abstinence on May 14th of 1982. Uh, that's when I put down the food. But I have some interesting things in here, like in 1990 I wrote, first day, God willing, of true emotional abstinence. Thank you, God. And I don't think that really was my first day of true emotional But I just, the, the reason I wanted to share with you guys today is that I have been searching for true emotional abstinence, even though it eluded me, I think, a lot over the years. But, um, and it still eludes me some days today. Who has true emotional abstinence? I think that means you're D-E-A-D, if you have true emotional abstinence. Um, but it was something I was searching for. And um, by going through the big book five years ago with a big book guy, I can't say that I have true emotional abstinence, but I have, uh, I feel like I'm on a steadier path towards it. And I'm very grateful for that. So anyway, yeah. And um, so we're going to start on uh, page 20, no, XXVI, that's page 26 in Roman numerals. Uh, in the doctor's opinion, the physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So, for myself, the alcoholic torture back in before, 19, well, until 1982 when I got my abstinence was that I, uh, I couldn't do what I wanted to do and I couldn't not do what I didn't want to do. And that was torture. I was, um, it wasn't just with the food, it was also with my emotions and um, my behaviors. And I, to, to the whole world, I looked pretty put together. I really did. I must really, you know, clean up well on the outside, but my insides were a mess. And I always felt sh like I was coming up short. And I, one, one of the things I've learned in, um, in recovery, thank God, is that um, is what a human being is like on the inside. No human being on the inside is like wrapped up like they are on the outside. And um, by allowing, my, by coming to terms with my own humanity and all that mush inside of me, and and yeah, it's still mushy sometimes. You know, it's never going to be completely uh, wrapped up. Um, by coming to terms with what a human being is, I've been able to accept other people's humanity so much better. And of course, as a result, um, I'm on a line towards emotional sobriety. I mean, so I'm grateful for that. Anyway, so the torture was that I couldn't do what I wanted to do and I couldn't stop doing what I didn't want to do. And the physical allergy is that when I ingest the substance that I'm allergic to, the foods that were uh, causing my difficulties, uh, causing me to binge because I was a binge eater, I, I, um, I, I've been you know, this size probably since 1982, and people look at me, especially because I've been coming to meetings in so many different cities. I started out in Cincinnati, I moved to Cherry Hill, then we moved to Chicago, we moved to Columbus, and we moved back to Chicago. Then 20, 21 years ago, we moved here, and I've been here. And none of you have ever seen me struggle with food. Some, many of you have seen me struggle with um, emotional issues in my family, uh, crises, because life has happened in the last 30-some years. 
uh, 36, seven years, whatever it's been. Um, you see me struggle with that, but you, so, so some people think I was either anorexic or bulimic or, you know, that I never had a weight issue. And I never had a big weight issue, but I fluctuated 30, 35 pounds, heavier, you know, heavier, up and down. Almost every year I'd go on that roller coaster. And even when I was 35 pounds heavier, I didn't look obese, but you couldn't tell me that. You know, my, I had such body dysmorphia that I had no clue of what my body, what, what a normal, my normal body is. Because my normal body isn't an airbrushed body from the middle of the, the, the uh, swimsuit edition. I just don't have that body. You know, I mean, if you, you could airbrush it maybe and make it that way. But, or surgery, surgery, you know, might, might be. I don't even know if surgery could do it because of bone structure and stuff. They'd have to cut tones and... Um, <laughs> So anyway, but I had such dysmorphia about my body. I really did. And so I, even when I was like 30, 35 pounds heavier, I thought I was overweight. But I wasn't 35 pounds heavier because I was eating healthy. I was 35 pounds heavier because I was binging my guts out. And I was a binger. And nobody saw me binge. And that was part of the, uh, that inside-outside disconnect. People saw me on a diet all the time. People didn't believe me when I said what I did with food. How could they? It was so bizarre. You know, I didn't tell that many people, but in any event. Um, and because I didn't tell people, they didn't really know what I was doing either. I couldn't even verbalize it. So I am a, a bona fide binger, and I had the physical allergy. And what that says to me, I want to explain what that is, is when I ingest a, a subject, that, a substance that I'm allergic to, it not only doesn't satisfy me, I think it's going to satisfy me, but it doesn't, and it makes the... Uh, mm the compulsive need for more intensify. Like normal things, you have it and you're satisfied, right? I mean, it's like that for, I guess I, I compare myself to a normal eater. They'll have a little bite of something, they go, ah, and they're happy. I take a little bite of something, I go, oh, wow, you know, and then I'm off and running. And, and it's not even necessarily for that. It's for everything that's not nailed down. And that's my physical allergy. That is my physical allergy, how it's manifests itself in me. It might manifest itself in you slightly differently. It doesn't matter. It's still a physical allergy that I'm different than others. And then my abnormal mind. Normal eaters don't think about food the way that I do. Even the first few years of my abstinence, I was obsessed with food. My abstinence food, how to get it, how to weigh it, how to measure it, how to blah, blah, blah it, how to plan it for my family. And you know, I was the food planner in my family, so it was very hard for me to differentiate what was obsession and what was no, my job, right? I mean, I was the mom, an at-home mom, and I did need to plan meals, but I would start planning meals. And this is an abstinence. This is an abstinence, and my sponsor, bless her heart, I mean, she's my friend and my sponsor today, she reminded me to pray, pray, pray. And that's what we did back in the days. You know, she said, you get a food obsession, zap it out with the serenity prayer, she said. That was as far as, you know, and it worked. Because after three years, I, um, I wasn't obsessed by food as much. You know, actually, I wasn't obsessed by food anymore. It started to really go away. And what helped me, too, was in the big book, in Dr. Bob's story, he said that he was um, plagued by the obsession for two and a half years. And that helped me feel okay that, you know, eventually this was going to stop. And it did. But, but normal people don't have to worry about that. You know, that's what makes me different than normal people. Normal people can look up a recipe and not think about food for the rest of the day, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have to tell you, because you know that. So the important thing is, oh, and then another thing about my abnormal mind is that I, um, I forget the pain that food caused me, like maybe even an hour later or a week later or even maybe a couple months later or a year later because that's what an addict does. They forget the pain that the substance caused them. Um, so that's basically part of my abnormal mind. I'm sure I'm leaving things out. This is the thing that I wanted to say for the end of that paragraph was I must believe this. I must believe it to the inner core of my body. And, and I, that's what comes from coming back, keep coming back. You hear other people, see people struggle, and you start to believe it for yourself, even if you didn't weren't quite sure that you weren't making too much a matter of something small. You know, I believe this in the bottom of my heart. This disease is so cunning and baffling and powerful because sometimes I can eat my trigger foods and they don't bother me. 
Sometimes I can do sloppy stuff with food, and it doesn't bother me. Thank God I haven't done sloppy stuff with food for over 30 years. But back in the day, I could sloppy, you know? And it didn't bother me. I could go for a week or a month or a year, maybe. And then eventually, you know, the 30 pounds would creep back up, and then I'd have to take it off, and it was that, ro- that yo-yo again. So it's only when I believe the truth about my addiction in my innermost core that I'm willing to, to work so darn hard to stay in recovery. And it's hard work. It's not, you know, I can't forget about it. I can't, you know, say, all right, well, I've been abstinent since May 14th, 1982. I don't need to go to a meeting today. I can never afford to think that. <clears throat> so I am willing to do the daily work because I really believe it in my soul. And uh, I just want to be a healthy spiritual, I want to be healthy spiritually, physically, and emotionally, uh, mentally. And only this program is going to do it. Only believing that in my core is going to get, let me do the work that I need to do to get there. So that's what I have to say about that. Hi, I'm Lily, compulsive overeater. Hi, Lily. I'm going to talk about the same paragraph that Laura did, but at first, I just wanted to give you guys a little background about myself. Um, Just a little background about myself. Not sure when I became aware that I do not eat like a normal person. Looking back, I realized my childhood was chaotic and very dysfunctional. My mother was a hoarder and my father was a very abusive alcoholic. My mother had an eating disorder, which I didn't realize until I came into OA. My eating disorder, I feel, really did save me from my childhood. Uh, The anxiety of being beaten or if my mother was going to be alive when I got home from school. The food to me would help. Um, Food was my comfort zone. I would take bites of certain food and automatically feel like life would be okay. Um, I did not have the best childhood and blocked a lot of my childhood out. I remember always being anxious about everything. Um, My father would threaten my mom saying if, if she took us like to shelter or somewhere safe, he would find us. And back then, because I'm, actually I'll be 51 next week, but back then, you know, like you didn't hear about abuse like you do now. It was very, because that was back in 1975. They, so abuse back then, you didn't really hear about it. It's not like I could go to school or my principal or somebody and say, hey, you know, like we're being abused or anything. You just didn't do that back then. So anyway, um, even though I was the baby in the family, I took on the role of taking care of everybody, like taking care of my mom, taking care of my sister, just, you know, making sure that the house was safe. And if I felt like my dad was getting upset or I could like see it in his eyes when he, um, when he was like really drunk and I knew like what was coming. So I would try and like diffuse the situation, like whatever I had to do to diffuse it. And literally food was like my only outlet. Like I never drank, I never did drugs, I just smoked cigarettes, but I'm not, like I started when I was like 14 smoking cigarettes. But up until then, food was definitely my go-to drug. And um, anyway, so where Laura just uh, spoke about on page 26, I said I don't need an excuse to go back into the food. I thought I had it under control, so I would go back to the food, especially if feelings started coming up. I had my feeling like feeling so suppressed that literally I don't remember a lot of things from childhood, but then when I would put the food down, like all these feelings would come up, and I really didn't know how to handle it because I don't even know what a normal childhood is like, and um, all I knew was the food, no matter what the food was like. I don't know if we're not to mention foods here. I think so. Um, but basically any fast food place or anything that wasn't healthy food, that's what I would turn to. And I would have stuff hidden under my bed. I would, like, have stuff, like, hidden in the closet. Um, as soon as my parents would, like, either one of them came home with groceries, I would, like, take the food and, like, just hide it. And definitely always, no one really saw me binge and no one really saw me eat um, the way I did. So on the outside... I was always working out and, you know, I had an awesome body and then, but then I would come home, I would eat dinner, I could be at a friend's house eating dinner, but then I would come home and like eat, like just like eat the whole rest of the night, like binge, binge, binge until I got sick and then I would still eat more, even after I got sick. I would never throw up, I wasn't 
bulimic or anything, but I just made myself so sick that that's all I could feel was just like the sickness and, you know, how I wanted to throw up, but yet I didn't. So anyway, um, when I put the food down, cause I forget, I don't know how long ago I came in that way, but what did we say? Like maybe like 15 years ago. So I would get abstinent and then something would happen, trigger me, I'd go back to the food. So especially when like deep, intense feelings would come up, I would definitely just, I just couldn't do it. It was, I'm like, I'm going to die without my food. And that's how I honest, honestly felt that, that I would rather die too. Um, very anxious and felt like I would die with my fix. I wanted my cake and eat it too. I wanted to eat the foods I wanted and still be healthy. I was um, possessed by the food. It was torture. I did have the physical allergy, but I didn't really understand it. That, you know, like, how could you have a physical allergy to food? I, like, totally did not get that. And my abnormal mind was that I just always would tell myself that I would, like, look at people and be like, how can they just eat something and not uh, just, you know, eat the whole sleeve of something or walk away from any kind of food that I'm just like, and I would just sit there and obsess over it. And then, um, let me see, I wanted to eat the foods I want and still be healthy. And, you know, I just have to accept the fact that I don't eat like normal, uh, normal person. And that, you know, I must believe that going back to the food is not going to be healthy for me. It's not good. And, you know, that's just something that I have to live with every day. And just tell myself it's been eight months since I've been totally abstinent and just working the program. <clears throat> and it is easier today than it was even eight months ago. But it's just something that, you know, I don't, I have to remind myself that, you know, it's so easy to just pick up something and just, do I really want to do that? Do I really want to be back there in that like hell torture? Um, of being in the food and just being hopeless. So now I don't. But anyway, so um, in the, on the doctor's opinion, a couple pages later, XXVIII28, I think it's 28. Um, it's where it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Is that 28? Am I right? Because yeah, mm-hmm. I, I have 26. <coughs> I have the wrong numbers, so I'm not sure. Okay. The sensation is so elusive. <clears throat> that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a t- time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, the alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that c- comes at once by taking a few drinks, which they see others take with impunity. After, and impunity means without punishment, without any kind of um, consequences. After they have succumbed, to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of esprit, emerging resource, remorseful, resourceful too, remorseful, <laughs> with a firm resu- resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless the person can experience an entire psychic change, there's little hope of, this reco- of his recovery. So I guess, you know, I really want to start at the beginning, but, I, but as I'm reading it, I want to start at the end, which is the purpose of this program, I want to remind everybody, because we're talking about step one and we're talking about where we came from, but the purpose of this program is to affect an entire psychic change, and that comes by working the steps. Um, uh, yesterday in the big book uh, story that we read, they talked about untangling the steps. It was in the story at the end of the book. Um, even though we do the steps in order, they're all tangled together, all the steps. And um, I'm of this new uh, belief in studying, not new, but I think it's important to study all the steps even though we're not there yet, you know, to, to know where they all come together. And when I'm talking about my powerlessness in step one, which is what we're examining today, I need to remember where that powerlessness is going to take me, that step one's going to take me to this um, entire psychic change that comes at the end of um, step 12, this uh, spiritual awakening. And that the purpose of all this work, of putting down the food and marching through the steps is to 
improve my conscious contact with God as I understand God. So I can get to, that's step 11, so I can get to step 12. So I think it's really important for me to realize that, you know, all these steps are all tangled together somehow. We do them in order. Yes, we do them in order, but we can understand them and untangle them. And actually step one um, and the powerlessness of step one, which we're talking about today, we're talking about the powerlessness uh, with our substance, but that's just the first part of the first step. There's, there's an arrow, there's, an, a, there's a, a hyphen. It's so we admitted we were powerless over food, dash, that our lives were, had become unmanageable. Well, even when the food's down, my life is unmanageable. That was part of the emotional sobriety I was seeking so desperately. Um, that was eluding me, but it's eluding me a little bit less now. Um, so that step one has to carry me even to my, you know, in my abstinent life. Step one is such an important uh, step. It's not just for people struggling with the food. Um, so that's, I just wanted to start from the end with that. And so the effect, the effect for me, and it's taken me quite a few years to be able to express what the effect of food, for my personal effect of food was, um, food took the edge off for me. And what was the edge? The edge was life, you know? The edge was the rough, the, 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 those, those, the normal buildup, the, the buildup of normal human emotions. That's what I, I hear a lot. The buildup of, and that's what the edge was. And it wasn't because I was so neurotic or I was, came from such a horrible background, which I did have a pretty dysfunctional background also, not exactly Mill's story, but you know, we all have our own little dif- dysfunctional backgrounds in our lives. The, the way we see life as a child is I've come to terms after being a teacher and a mother and a grandmother. The way we see life is sometimes dysfunctional as a child. You know, you don't see things completely. That doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to children. Don't get me wrong. But children and time distort things. And, you know, you can have two people in the same situation with two completely different memories of it. Maybe they're both bad, but they're different memories of it. I'm not saying that anyone's bad or, or, or neurotic or psychotic because they don't remember it the same way, but the memory does things like that. And so that was my edge. You know, however I uh, saw that I was harmed or wounded or uh, not loved enough. Who of us was loved enough, you know? <laughs> Although there are people who say they were loved too much. I don't know, I haven't met too many of those people. <laughs> Most of us weren't loved enough, but yeah, there are, I mean, you can love someone too much too and not teach them about reality, and that's their rough edges. But anyway, um, so my edge, that's why I ate, to take the edge off. I also ate because I liked it. You know, I would have called myself a foodie back in the day. Well, I was no foodie. But I mean, I liked food and I liked experimenting with new foods and blah, 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 and new recipes and stuff like that. But it, it, it was a little different. It was a little different than the, the normal foodie. I was a foodie with an addiction. Um, so anyway, I ate for lots of reasons. And I ate when I was happy, I ate when I was sad. I don't want you to think I only ate to take the edge off. I, I ate whenever I wanted to. Hmm. And if I was tired of being overweight, then I dieted. I mean, that was how I did. I, I ate low calorie. I learned the value of low calorie very early in my teenage years. Um, I also, and, and I like to share this because some people can get it. I confuse low calorie and low price a lot. So I look for like the least caloric, least costly things. Seriously, I mean, I just had this like weird conflation of those two things in my head. Anyway, so um, they say they are restless, irritable, and discontented. And I heard this um, in a meeting, restless means uneasy, irritable means easily annoyed, and discontented is never satisfied. Well, there you go, honey, you got me. That's my definition, right? Uneasy, easily annoyed, and never satisfied. Um, Part of my uh, discontent as an adult was that I had come so far from my childhood, so far, you can't imagine how far I came and was so gratefully far from my childhood and I still felt like something was wrong, you know? <laughs> when's the other shoe gonna fall? Or when's they gonna find out that, you know, I'm a fraud or whatever it is? And to me, that's never satisfied. I couldn't, I couldn't even enjoy the good things in my life and have lots of good things in my life. 
And I was still eating to take the edge off. Like, what's wrong with this? So also I can be, well, I call restless irritability and discontent rid. So I said here, I can even be rid when the food is down. Um, and of course, that's what the manage, unmanageability of my life is. That I can, on a daily basis, become restless, irritable, discontent because I'm a human being, and the normal build, the buildup of everyday human emotions can cause restlessness, irritability, and discontent. And that's why I have steps 10, 11, and 12 to address those things. And that's why I have steps one through nine to teach me how to live in 10, 11, and 12 so I can address those things. But that's the tanglement of all the steps. Um, the steps lead me to an entire psychic change, which is the spiritual awakening, the promise of step 12. And that awakening, so that awakening and that relationship with the higher power is what protects me from my ego and the inevitable rid of daily life. I thought, oh, I like that. You know, that spiritual <coughs> awakening is going to protect me, like put a cocoon around me, the daily 10, 11, 12 work from getting so bad that I think I need to eat to take the edge off. Or I think I need to even like scream or carry on like a banshee to take the edge off. Like there's different ways of reacting now and that, um, that uh, spiritual awakening is what protects me, which, which protects me from the allergy which is never ever ever gonna go away. But as long as I stay in fit spiritual condition, I'll have like a padding around me. You know, the program is it. You guys, you're part of my padding. And, and uh, the, the working in 10, 11, and 12 and sponsoring people and going to meetings and making phone calls, that's part of my, my protection from the insanity, the, the, the mental obsession. That's why I do all this work. Okay, now. So, still on the same page. When it says, after they have succumbed to the desire again, and so many do that the phenomenal craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little. So what I would do was um, I would be abstinent, and then I would start eating, and I was like, I would eat dinner, say I would eat dinner, and then I like literally two or three hours later, I would go and hit like every fast food restaurant I could find, which wasn't that hard considering where I live and um you know I would just sit there and like binge and binge and binge and then I would play these tricks with myself I'd be like oh well if I eat before midnight before like like I was Cinderella like if I <laughs> ate before midnight then you know I'll start clean tomorrow or then you know I, I would just do all these things all these and especially I work 3 to eleven thirty, so Everybody at work would see me eat healthy stuff, like, you know, my little measure stuff, everything. But then on the way home, what nobody knew was that I would stop at Wendy's and to go home and, like, totally binge. Um, you know, and I would always say exactly what they were saying here, how uh, I would just play this game and I would binge on my trigger foods and then tell myself, oh, I'll eat clean tomorrow. Oh, well... You know, I'm, I messed up, so I might as well just, oh, well, it's going to be the first of the month in like a week. I might as well just wait until then mm -hmm. to start being abstinent. So, um, and then sometimes I would like look in my car like the next day and I would see like all these wrappers and like all these different things from like the different places I've been. And it's not like I was like, well, it's comatose or, you know, like blacked out. But then I was, sometimes I would just be like, wait, did I really do that last night? And um, so food is definitely my drug of choice. But like I said, I just felt like I love what the food did to me when at that moment when I was eating it. I mean, it wasn't until like I put the food down, whether I like, you know, because I was sick or whatever, that I was just like, oh my gosh, like what did I do? I feel horrible. And then I would start the whole negative thinking like, oh my gosh, like, you know, how come I can't get this? over and over again you know like how many times do I have to start and stop being abstinent and then go back to the food being abstinent and then go back to the food uh so so many times I felt really hopeless and like I was like oh my gosh there's no hope but then in the meetings I would hear I would go to the Saturday meetings in Havertown and I just would still come back like no matter what I was just like all right 
no matter how embarrassed I am or ashamed or whatever, because, you know, when you are an overeater, we wear it. Um, it's not like an alcoholic or a drug addict where we can just stop and, like, nobody can tell. But, I mean, if I'm obviously if I'm binging and eating, I'm going to be overweight so people can see that I'm not eating healthy. And, um, you know, so then you just, like, I would just feel horrible about myself even more. And it was literally, like, just... It was just pure torture. So anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> so um, and what Mill talking just reminded me of something that um, I'm in a 12-step workshop. Uh, it's a, like a weekly call kind of thing. And um, the person who's running the workshop, is a, he's a uh, recovering alcoholic, <clears throat> talks about how um, we get recovery at the intersection of willingness and grace. <laughs> I love that idea because many of us, many of us had to struggle for so long in program before that intersection of willingness and grace came together. And, um, and, and, and it's a mystery. This person talks about it being a mystery. It's not anything that you can, uh, you know, you don't earn it. It's just grace is grace, right? Um, and grace for me is grace with a capital G. I mean... So I just love that concept. And um, I had in my notes from a meeting that I'd gone to, practice being willing to be willing, and grace eventually meets up with willingness. Grace eventually meets up with willingness. And so that, doesn't, that means that I need to take action, right? I need to practice doing, you know, keep coming back like I did my, you know, those nine months when I still struggled with the food and, and, and anybody else's, you know, 12 years or 15 years or however many years you had to struggle with the food. Keep coming back. Listen, you know, if it, because if you don't keep coming back, you're not going to hear it. You're not going to know when the grace hits you <laughs> if you're not here to, to receive it. And, you know, just keep coming back, keep coming back. Do the best you can. That's all you can do, the best you can. Even when the best I can was piss poor, you know, I'm going to do the best I can, the best I can. And eventually the willingness I mean, the grace is going to meet up with the willingness. I don't know about grace. You know, I'm, if I could explain grace to you, then grace wouldn't be big enough for me, right? I mean, if I could, if I could tell you what grace was, if, and I'm, obviously I'm talking about grace like a higher power, but if I could explain the word, what that grace is, what that higher power is, it wouldn't be big enough, right? If, I, if any one person can talk about it, then it's not big enough. So I have to accept that there's a big mystery out there. I don't get it. And eventually the willing, to me, that's such a magical idea. I just love it. Not that, not that recovery is magical, although maybe it is. I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. You know what they, I used to hear, and it's true, the more you know, the, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and we all know what knowledge gets us anyway. <laughs> Especially regarding addiction. It might get us somewhere in our work. It might get us somewhere in our you know, in our careers, or our work, or our lives, knowledge, but with addiction, mm-mm, knowledge don't do you a bit of good. It's the experience, it's that experience of willingness and grace coming together, I think. That's the best way a human being, this human being, feels like she can explain that. So anyway, um, move on to, let's see, we read 28, and so now we're on 31, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. We did this to stay together. And we don't have to mess with the books because we have it written down here. Did you want uh, Yeah. Did you want to start? Go ahead. No, I didn't know. Okay. You may. So, um, Doctor's Opinion page, well, it's XXXI31. It says, what is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I think a lot of my issues was I did not want to accept the fact that I had issues with food or any kind of addiction. And I thought about the surgery, especially when it was like all big when it first came out. Any kind of solution other than what's in this book, I was willing to take. 
and then um you know i just didn't the solution was right there in this book but i didn't want to do it i felt like it was too hard like make phone calls go to meetings <clears throat> make amends and who the heck wants to do that because then also you have to feel feelings so um I did not want to accept the fact that the solution was I had to put down the food and work the program, work the steps, make phone calls, make amends, fear what, feel whatever feelings came up and deal with them in a healthy way. When I ate, I was still lonely. Two of my biggest emotional triggers are loneliness and fearful. I'm a very outgoing person, but yet this disease is very isolating where I will you know, like sit in my room or sit wherever, sit in my house and just eat and eat and eat. And I remember so many times it would be like one o'clock in the morning, like snowing. And I was like, oh, I have to have this, this item. I literally would get in my car and drive to some place that I knew was open 24 hours. It didn't matter. Snow. I, I would walk there if I had to. And so that would take me like an hour. Now I could have, instead of doing that, I could have been making phone calls. I could have been listening to podcasts. I could have been doing anything. So the hour that it, I just wasted, think, looking back, I just wasted a lot of time and energy on getting my fix, getting my food. And I'm just like, wow. I'm like, when I was in like that state, of course, when I was doing it, it made it made such sense to me, and that. I like just knew once I ate whatever I was uh, craving at that time, that my life was going to be fine. You know, everything was going to be fine in my life um, as long as I had that item. When I didn't have the item, I would just be like an emotional wreck, and I just didn't know how to channel the feelings I was feeling because growing up, I never had role models to where, you know, I was taught on how to feel when I, like certain feelings or uncomfortable feelings came up. I was never taught how to manage the feelings or how to work through them. Uh, you know, my mom was in the same situation where, you know, she was being abused. We were all being abused. So none of us were very like, I don't know what you want to say. We were all dysfunctional, I guess you could say. So anyway, so um, being overeater is definitely a disease of isolation. Um, so, um, the plan, yeah, right, but he said he accepted the plan outlined in the book, and that's what I wanted to focus on. So, uh, so this is my big book from when I first came into program, and, um, we studied the big book. We read more about alcoholism. We read how it works. Um, I was in, um... I got my abstinence in May of 82 with uh, HOW, HAL, it came, it came flying through Cincinnati in September of uh, 81, which was about you know a couple months after I'd come into OA. And when I did step ups with people, you know, I have the little parts blocked off that we read, you know, the third step, and um, I mean, I used the big book. I did, but I used it uh, bits and pieces, no one ever, read through the big book. I don't know why, and I don't fault anybody. None of us knew any better. We really didn't. And um, back, and I told you I have my dates written down. I think it was in, um, in about 19, I'm um, so sorry, 2011 or 12, I started uh, working with, a, um, I'd lived in, in Cincinnati, I'd lived in, a, this area, where, where are we? Philadelphia area, yeah, um, since 97. And I finally, finally start, asked someone to be my local sponsor. Okay, I had my sponsor from 1980, uh, 1982, my friend in Cincinnati, and we're still very close friends today, and we sponsor each other back and forth over the years. But about, I think it was 2011 or 2012, we, uh, I started talking to someone, maybe it was 2010, I'm not even sure, but we decided that, you know, somehow, and we still hadn't read the big book through, that we wanted to do a nightly review together. And we start, and so I took um, the, the words of step 11 in the big book and I made a little template just before I even knew it was in the Region 7 uh, journal. You know, I just, and I answered the questions, you know. Um, I should know them by heart because I answer them every night. But 
I made a little template, and so this was in 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2010, 11, or 12, sometime around then, we started doing this, my, my, my local, I called her my local big book, uh, my local sponsor, and um, let me just read a couple of questions so you know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, when we retire at night, we would constructively review our day, were we resentful, self-dishonest, or afraid, I leave a space, you know, were we, do we owe an apology, leave a space, and I, I thought I was so smart doing this, you know, and uh, we um, did this with each other, night by, every night by email, and that was about 2010, 11, 12, sometime in there, and then um, I started hearing about the, the coffee shop, was that, was it, yeah. that was the predecessor to Vision for You? Yeah. And I, I went on it once and I thought, well, they're a little weird. <laughs> they are a little obsessed with the big book. You know, so here, you know, I just knew pick and choose from the big book, but they were obsessed. I mean, they'd spend, but it was better than some of the phone meetings that I tried where they would argue about a, one green bean over the cup, you know, and because that was my only experience with phone meetings, you know, was, oh God, I said, oh, I'm not going to listen to a phone meeting if they're going to talk about green beans, you know, one half a cup and it has one more over the cup and, you know, is that abstinent or not? I, I didn't want to, I mean, that's important to deal with, but not to deal with in a meeting venue, I don't think so. I mean, you have to come to terms with that for yourself. You know, what your abstinence looks like, are you gonna measure it, are you gonna, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's for you to do with your higher power and your, your nutritionist and your sponsor, but not in a meeting venue, at, at least from what I understood about meetings over the years. And then I listened to the coffee shop and, the, you know, they parsed the sentences, you know, and I thought, well, that's almost as bad, and I said, ugh, that's, that's a little too obsessive for me. But then I was hearing more about that, you know, that blew up, and it turned into vision, and how vision was sounded so, and had such a message of depth and weight, and I started listening, and yeah, they did have a message of depth and weight, and it didn't sound quite as obsessive. Maybe it was, I don't know, but it didn't sound quite as obsessive. And so I said to my big, my local sponsor, um, I said, because she used to talk about how great this vision for you meeting was. I said, well, well, what do they do on vision for you? Have you ever, you know, like, I, th I said to her, I think I'm going to ask somebody to take me through the big book so I can know what they do. Now, I didn't know it's, it's not they. Everybody does things differently on vision for you. It's just a meeting. Really, it's just an OA meeting that happens to meet five days a week and once on Sunday. Or not five days a week. I'm sorry. Yeah, five days a week, twice a day, blah, blah, blah. But it's just one meeting. It really isn't. And if there's 300 people in the line, there's 300 different ways of, of attacking this big book and working with it. But, so I asked someone to take me through so I could at least know what it... The reason I wanted to do it was because I felt like I was sponsoring so by the seat of my pants over the years. I would do the 30 questions. I would do this. I would, if I heard about that, I'd do this. If I heard about that, because I was searching for a way to help pass on what I had, which I couldn't quantify to anybody else. So anyway, somebody was very willing uh, and took me through, and this was five years ago. And I did it mainly so I could learn how to sponsor, but little did I know, because I really did it with the intent of doing it, because I felt I couldn't take anybody through unless I did it myself. By doing it, I ended up having a transformation. Look at that, you know, 30, 30 some years in program, I was abstinent, but all of a sudden, I learned how to like do the steps on a daily basis, and certainly didn't learn how to do it perfectly, because I'm learning even more today how to do it, and tomorrow I'll learn a little bit better how to do it. But I, can, I started to have that transformation. And I also had, and I'm very grateful to say, this is my book that I sponsored. I have to tell you, this book is from 1981, and this book is from just five years ago, and look at it. I don't think they make books like they used to. But, but it might be because it's so colorful and so, you know, so used. I mean, this book is like used, you know? Because um, I'm constantly taking people through with the notes at that big book guy took me through. So the whole purpose of that was to tell you that a big book guy took me through the book and we did the steps according to the directions in the big book, according to her interpretation. I mean, her interpretation isn't the end all and beyond. I've learned things since then and I've, I've, I've uh, changed and more, you know, what I do with people change and morph because I hear people all the time do things a little bit differently and, you know, it grows, you know. She, one thing she did tell me that is, I tell everybody all the time, trust the process, more will be revealed. 
that's so open-ended that tells me that just trust the process. You know, my process was to go through it with her the way I went through it with her, and more is revealed on a daily basis. So anyway, that's <clears throat> that's where that took me. That that um, uh, the plan outlined in the book. That's the the point that I'm pointing out from that paragraph. Um, so. And I just want to say that by accepting the plan outlined in the book, I moved from someone, when she took me through my inventory and we talked about anger and um, uh, resentment, and she said, well, if you're not angry or resentful, think about irritation. And, I, and when she talked about irritation, I went, oh my God, irritation is my middle name. Yeah. And that was five years ago. That was after being in program for 30-some 30, 30 years, right? 32 maybe at the time, I can't even remember anymore. But a long time. So I have irritation. And you know what? Irritation's not my middle name anymore. Because the second I feel irritation, which I do, hello, I wouldn't be a human if I didn't, I address it. I address it. I know I can't afford to stay there. I can't afford to stay there. Um, it's, gonna, it's going to lead to, for me, depression. I, happen, I know I don't look like a depressed person, but I have a depressive personality. And if I allow myself one little bite of irritation, I could sink into the hole of being a miserable lady for a long time. I mean, really miserable. That's the way my body chemistry is, folks. And back in the day, with how, they used to say, abstinence is three way to measure meals a day with nothing in between but low calorie beverages and sugar-free gum and abstaining from negative thinking. And you know what? Even though a lot of what they said didn't work for me like that low-calorie beverages and sugar-free gum thing that took me down another path of, that I had to learn. Abstaining from negative thinking, isn't that what step 10 helps us do, right? No one's going to do it perfectly because we're all human, but abstaining. And so there was some kernel there, you know, there was a lot of good stuff. People were trying to do it. We were trying so hard, but it, it wasn't until I went through the big book that I learned how to do it. Thank you, God, you know. So I went from being a woman who said that irritation was her middle name to someone who's a lot closer to having a peaceful heart. I have most of the time. I'm going to say more of the time, okay, because there's still lots of room for this irritation, you know. And I guess I'll never be perfectly free from it. But at least I have a path for when it occurs, promptly admitting it, right? That's what it says in step 10, when it, not if, but when. Okay. So now we're supposed to go on to the next one? Well, go to page six to eight. Well, I'll go to oh, page okay. 14. Oh, go ahead. So on page 14, um, where it says, like, faith without works is dead. So I always considered myself a believer and a faithful Christian. I could not figure out this whole father of light with my food issues. I believe I wasn't ready then, but now I am. I know I can't binge no matter what. It's been eight months and I'm doing great. I'm not turning to food. Instead, I'm working the steps, exercising, doing what I need to do, feeling the feelings, which is the hardest part. It, um, it is hard to just be and feel the feelings where I feel like my crying is out of control. Um, so it always was saying about, you know, God and your spirit. And, and I'm just like, I was a deacon in my church I was like, how can I not get this? Like, how just, what is going on? And, um, you know, I would, like, get on my knees. I would, like, cry all the time. Like, God, just let me please put down the food. And that would work for, like, literally an hour. And then I was, like, back in the food. And so it was just, I just felt, like, so ho so hopeless and just, and then I would go to the meetings, and I would see people with, like, 30 years recovery, and I was just like, really? I was just like, you know, like, how do they get that? And then I was just, I would, like, hear how they would work the program. I'd be like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, who has time for all that? And, um, you know, just how, like, they would sponsor people and just, you know, I just would listen to their shares, and I would be like, oh, my gosh, I don't think I can do that because I had moved back. Um, like 10, 11 years ago, back in with my dad um, to take care of him and my sister who had health issues. Since then, they both have passed. But, um, you know, like just being back in that dysfunction family, like I would try and be 
uh, be absent again. And then, you know, like my dad would like get me mad or my sister or, you know, I'd have them both in the hospital and have to like, you know, talk to their doctors. Or I had like one time my sister was at Temple. My dad was at uh, Bryn Mawr and they were both being discharged on the same day. And I still had to work at three. So, you know, I had to go down Temple, pick up my sister, then go to Bryn Mawr, pick up my dad, get them both home, make sure that they were okay and then go to work and try and focus on, you know, my job. And again, the only thing I could do was just turn to the food because that's the only thing that would make me feel like, okay, I can handle anything. Anything God wants to throw my way, I can handle as long as I have the food, whatever, whatever I chose that time. Um, so anyway, so what does it say? Oh, simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over all of us. Uh, so now I do work the steps. I went through the steps again. I made amends to people. You know, I do, I do what I need to do right now. No matter how hard it is and no matter how much I really don't want to do it, like, you know, before I would like eat and then call people. So because I knew if I would make outreach calls before I eat, they you know, they would tell me not to do it. <laughs> but after I ate, I was like, well, it's already too late. So even if they tell me not to do it, I already ate the food that I really wanted. So, um, you know, it was just like that mental twist that I, like I would just like, it's just so nice to be free of that. <laughs> of I don't have to worry about picking up the food. I mean, I can still pick up the food, but I I don't, and it's just so nice, and definitely my life is not easy with the food down, and I still have a lot of issues, you know, like emotional issues or whatever else comes up. Um, you know, I'm still dealing with, my sister passed away four years ago, and, and then my dad got sick like 11 months after her, and he passed away, so I'm still... I don't think I ever really let myself feel those feelings just because I just had so much going on and just I was in school for nursing and so I don't think I let myself feel um and that's another issue I have is just I like pile stuff on so much I like you know oh yeah I'll do that oh yeah I'll do that I'll do that so you know I don't have to think about anything anyway so if you want to yeah I'd like to talk about the same thing too um I must turn in all things Mm-hmm. See how time flies when you're having fun? <laughs> uh, um, so Bill had a sudden uh, spiritual experience when he first worked the steps, and for me the experience has been more of the educational variety, as I've shared. Um, sort of, and, and this guy who I'm doing this workshop with, he talks about a dimmer switch, you know, a spiritual experience being like a dimmer switch. It's like you don't even realize the light's getting brighter and brighter, um, as, as opposed to an on-off switch, which is, you know, like, you know, that big glow of light that Bill felt. And even though I've had experiences of that glow, and I'm sure we all have, they, they don't sustain you through the day-to-day. You know, you still need that dimmer switch. You know, I've, I've had like wonderful, you know, feelings of seeing something awesome or just, um, oh, just this week, my daughter lost um, an earring that my mother had given me as a gift and I gave my daughter a little cameo earring. She lost it in the swimming pool at the hotel we were at. This is an awesome story, so that's why I'm telling it to you. And I had that feeling this week, but it's not going to take me to next week. You know, it, it, it's, I'm still excited because it just happened. Anyway, two days later, we saw the pool guy who was cleaning the pool out, and we asked him if, um, if he found one. Of course he didn't. He said, but I'll check the skimmers later. We were coming back from breakfast, and he was coming from her room with the earring. He found it in the skimmer. This is a tiny little... You know, we're not talking about anything big, and it, was, it, it meant a lot. It, it's gold, but it was probably not valuable, valuable, but it meant a lot because my mother had given it to me as a gift, and I gave them to her because she liked them. And, you know, hello, this was two days after she lost it in the skimmer, and I just felt so close to God, especially because she was getting annoyed with me for asking him. She thought I was bothering him by asking him. And so that was even more that feeling of God, you know, made me do something even though it wasn't approved of by, you know, the one who I want approval from, 
you know, you think you want approval from your parents, but you want approval from your kids too. <laughs> anyway, um, and that earring being found, that tiny little earring in the skimmer, this is a big motel pool in Ocean City. I mean, we're not talking about a little bathtub here. And, um, you know, to me, that was God, even though God is so much bigger than that. I mean, when people tell God stories like that, it's so material, you know, but I just felt God's presence. I really did, like, oh my God, the fact that I even felt comfortable enough to ask this guy to look, even though I didn't think we had a chance of a snowball and you know where, of finding it in the skimmer, but whatever. Anyway, it was there. Can you believe it? So those are moments, you know, like moments, like when you see someone you haven't seen in a million years and you were just talking about them, or, you know, those, like, woof, you really feel connected, but they don't, they're wonderful, and I'm glad to recognize them, and they're very special. They add to my consciousness of my higher power. They do. But they don't take you through the day-to-day -day rough edges. They really don't, because when you're in the rough edges, you forget about those wonderful things. So that's why I need the dimmer switch going on at the same time as I need to have these big poofs. <laughs> so, um, and the way the dimmer switch works for me is by doing the daily application of the principles of the program. And it helps me chip away at my character defects, which are ever-present and ever-there. They'll never be gone till I'm gone, when everybody remembers me so glowingly, and then all my character <laughs> defects will be gone, right? Um, but that's the only time they're gone, you know, when, when you're not here anymore to get tripped up in them. Anyway, so one of my, and I said this before, but I'd like to repeat it. One of the most beautiful gifts of this program is understanding the human condition in ways I never have before. I think Bill was so brilliant. He really, all he was was a stockbroker or a speculator or something. I mean, he wasn't a psychologist or, or a theologian or anything like that. And he seemed to get the essence of the human condition in pages 1 to 164. I don't know how he did it. Um, but... So I understand the human condition. I don't understand myself perfectly. That's why I have to come to meetings and have sponsees and sponsors to remind me of my human condition. But I have such a better chance of accepting the humanity of the people in my life and going with the flow when I understand them. Most times I have I've written, um, I have a much better chance of accepting the humanity of the people in my life and going with the flow of reality. And I have flow of reality in a capital F and a capital R because that to me is my higher power is the flow of reality sometimes. And that's what the, the 10 steps, uh, then I said, of course, 10 step is for those times of disharmony. <laughs> you know? And that's what this program is for. So um, I also like on page 14 how Bill tells the importance of the two directors of the 12th step, the necessity of practicing the principles in all of my affairs and perfecting and enlarging my spiritual life by working with others. Um, and that's all in Bill's story. Did you want to say something else? Well, we have three more minutes. I'll just like mm -hmm. say like how. Mm -hmm. So I just want to like wrap it up because we're running out of time. But for me, um, just how the program has helped me. For an example, uh, I had an issue at work the other day or last week, and um, I had to have a meeting with the, another coworker, my manager, before. I was working the steps, I would have become very defensive and not able to hear what was being said in the meeting. Now I was able to sift through the email and write notes. I was able to call my mentor from church, talk things out. I was able to call my sponsor, talk things out and do a 10-step inventory before the meeting. I felt the meeting went well, of course. After the meeting, I was a mess. The more I thought about the meeting, I realized how I was being bullied. After crying for days about it, not eating over it, um, I scheduled a meeting with my manager and started applying to different jobs. Even if it meant I had to leave my current position, which I love working and I love, I love well, 99% of my coworkers I love. And um, so before this program, I would have taken the bullying and stayed stuck. Now I know I don't have to. Um, I have my higher powers always with me. And also, like I'm on a new journey since um, I lost basically my whole family. And I'm not, you know, in school, and I don't have anyone at home to take care of. So I really don't know who Mill is because I was always defined as, um, you know, like taking care of my family, even even in childhood. Then I was, um, I got divorced when I was when my son was 15 months old. So then I was like, you know, a single mom for 23 years, and then 
um, you know, I was in school, so it's just now I don't have any of that to contend with. So it's just like, who am I? And, um, you know, so anyway, so it's just an interesting journey. So I have to figure out now who I really am and, um, you know, work through all the childhood issues and all that good fun stuff to, <laughs> to be healthy. So anyway, um, I did bring pictures too, and I'll send around because in December I was hospitalized with really bad asthma. And um, it just reminded me of my sister, and I was never as heavy as I was then. And I'm just like, I can't go on like this because, and I, that was like my turning point. And I have been abstinent since December 21st um, of that. You know, I just didn't want to be in and out of the hospital like my sister was on oxygen and just, um, you know, that, that's really no way to live life. I couldn't even walk up a flight of steps without needing, needing a breathing treatment. And um, so anyway, so I know I was definitely on uh, not a very good path. So anyway, so thanks for letting me share. And if you want to just finish. So yeah, I just want to quickly say that I love when Fred says on page 43 in More About Alcoholism that he's been brought into an, a way of life infinitely more satisfying and more useful than the life he lived before. I would not exchange the best moments of my old manner of life for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. Um, the steps are my blueprint for living and the instruction manual that I always thought everybody else had and I didn't have, and now I have it. So I'm very grateful. Thanks for letting me share.